So there's a lot in chapter 6. It would be hard to cover every bit of it in a single lecture. Um, There's sort of... There's five elements in the chapter. One element talks about ontology, and that's something... We actually discussed that out of order early in the semester. Let me just remind you, though. It's this idea that computations, in some sense... What what makes computations kind of interesting is, on the one hand, they're physical processes, and on the other hand, they're uh, possible thoughts. So that's that's why I think the notion of computation has sort of a a more central role in philosophy than, than might have been realized, because it's sort of a bridge between the mind and the body. It's a, a physical thing. It runs on some physical system, but it has this abstract element, this this element of having a rule that it's it's unfolding, and that allows us to think of it in this way. And uh, again, I went over this earlier, so I won't do it today. But just there's this whole question: if we have the physical, the computation, and the thought. Like, are these three things, do they overlap? If you're a hardcore universal automatist, you say, yeah, every, every physical process is a computation, every thought is a computation, it's all, it's just one thing. And then you can go to the other extreme and you say, well, there might be physical things that aren't thoughts. There might be, and that's not so unreasonable, really. We could say there, there might be some physical things that you just can't think about. When you delve into quantum mechanics, it begins to seem like there's some aspects of quantum mechanics that you just can't wrap your mind around. And it could be that there's some things that permanently resist being thought about. On the other hand, you could say there might be thoughts that aren't physical. Uh, maybe we have ectoplasm. Maybe we can leave our bodies. Uh, maybe there's something beyond ordinary physics. And then you could say maybe there's things that are physical and are thinkable that don't happen to be computations. Uh, Maybe somehow a a human mind can get into thought modes that lie beyond what computations do. That's sort of a dream. Sometimes uh, philosophers argue for this position. Actually, I was just reading a paper by Richard Teason following up on some ideas of Kurt Gödel, who wanted to argue that the human mind does, in fact, have modes that go beyond what computation can do. But that's all... uh, And I'm not really unsympathetic to that position. It seems to me it could be that maybe computations aren't everything. It's... uh, Just a minute ago... um, Emil mentioned that he's reading chapter 6, and uh, or maybe it's you, Ephraim, and you got to the point at the end of the chapter where I, I take it all back. I suddenly say, look, I don't believe in universal automatism. Reality is endlessly diverse. And I had this, I'd been working on this book for a long time, and as I described there, I was at Big Sur camping with my wife and standing in this nice pool of the river, and just feeling this revulsion, like, this is water. I mean, this just is not a computation. I'm just tired of putting my mind through these hoops and pretending to believe something that I know deep down isn't true. And uh, then, 
a few months went by, and uh, then I started thinking, well, you know, it it doesn't have to be that. It, it's it could be really that my thoughts are computations, and. Uh, I think there's this tendency to want to say my thoughts aren't computations because I want to be different from uh, the natural world. Like typically, we like humans. We like to say we're, you know, we're the, the crown of creation. We're something different. You know, we have souls. Whatever. We're different from objects. But um, then. So my sort of secondary position was, well, maybe I should just relax and say, look, I'm just this fractal, whatever. I'm this this cellular automaton. And although I feel like I'm not just some system obeying logical rules, I could be, after all. And the thing is, if you look at that in the right way, it's not that you're saying that means that I'm dull and I'm just this gray room and a robot monotone reciting the digits of pi, you know. I, it, I could still be as rich and interesting. The, the, the sort of upside there is if I say I'm not different from natural objects, I'm not different from everything in the world, then that has the beneficial feeling of leaving you not so divided from the natural world. One of the things... Uh, when we feel sort of unhappy and lonely is when we feel like we're not at one with reality. And if I can feel like I'm really, if I can have this monistic ontology where there is just one thing, computation, and it's everywhere, then uh, in some ways that can be kind of a, a cheerful thing to believe. Um, this said, uh, there still could be this residue, something I was mentioning to some of the guys before class. I've been reading this book called Panpsychism in the West. Uh, and it's by a guy called David Skrbina. I guess that's probably a Czechoslovakian name. And uh, he's saying, well, a lot of philosophers have argued for the idea, okay, I can reduce everything to computation, but there's still, there's this thing that was bugging me in Big Sur. There's this feeling, this residue, this feeling that I have this glow, like the world has this numinous quality, this magical quality of, of existing. And after all, there's something about the world that it's not just logic, it's not just computation, because it's actually happening. It's here, it's real, and there's something something that's added, and we can never quite put our finger on what it is. And one way to look at it is to say that it's mind. And panpsychism is the belief that uh, every object has a mind. I think that's something I've mentioned in here before, like this piece of chalk has a mind. Not that it's uh, thinking in the way that I do, but just in the sense that it would somehow have this, this golden glow that uh, is inside it. So, uh, if you like, Skirbina makes the point that actually panpsychism is compatible really with just about any solution to the mind-body problem that you care to come up with. He says it's more like a meta-theory than a theory. 
because, um, I mean, I can be sort of a materialist and say everything is a computation. I can be a universal automatist. But I can also be a panpsychic. I can say everything's a computation. And as for that glow of mind that you have, yes, it's real, but it's not just in you, it's in the stapler, it's in your watch, it's in that piece of dirt. Uh, there's this argument in one of Plato's dialogues when they're talking about everything having a platonic form. And in a loose way, maybe the platonic form is a little bit like the mind that's in each thing. And then one of the guys is saying, well, does dirt and hair and other despicable things have a platonic form? And, and so you, you find yourself pushed into these positions. You, you kind of have to. Once you kind of open the doors there, you sort of can't draw the line anywhere. And you do get into these somewhat, un, you know, things that I've mentioned earlier. Here's a piece of paper. It has a mind. I tear it in half. I've got two minds. Uh, and this is almost another mind. Now it's loose. There's happy birthday. Is that a re? Well, yeah. Well, is spatial? Yeah. Is spatial separation so important? Another angle on panpsychism, and is the idea that there's one mind that fills everything. It's just one big mind that's everywhere. But uh, I think that what they really, what panpsychism wants to argue for, is it's not so much that, although that's a form of panpsychism, the one mind view. But it's more, I think it more wants to say there's lots of little individual minds. But again, at some point you could say, well, maybe this is just a linguistic game. I mean, what am I really saying? Is, it, is to have a mind nothing more than to exist? I mean, but uh, at the least, there does seem to be some sort of emotional content to it. And... Uh, it's conceivable there could be some kind of scientific test. Um, I was mentioning to some of the guys before class, I just wrote a short story this week called Panpsychism Proved. And in it, there's a, somebody finds a way to do telepathy. And it's you get these particles that are in Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen entanglement slash synchronization with each other. And so there's there's two people, and uh, they've got these particles that are in sync with each other. And the idea is this person will eat some of them, and this person will eat some of them, and then they'll be sort of doing this observation on these particles, and they'll actually collapse the wave function, and their wave functions will be entangled. So they'll be in this mystic magic jelly communication with each other. And then the punchline in my story, what I did, I had this guy, uh, it's like a man and a woman, uh, Shirley and Rick. Rick thinks Shirley's creepy. You know, he really doesn't want to be in contact with her. So he goes outside. Instead of eating his magic dust, he puts it on this boulder that's lying on the lawn. And so then Shirley uh, feels herself to be in contact with a, a crystalline 
serene, calm, ancient mind. And then she realizes it's a boulder. But the point of the story is that it's, it's imagining, it's the classic thought experiment. It's imagining a situation where you would have a reason to say that it actually meant something to say the rock had a mind. It'd be more than just saying, because it exists, it has a mind. No, it has a mind, and I can get in contact with that mind, which would be cool. That's, I like that idea a lot. I'm thinking about using it in the next long science fiction story I write. Like, if everything is a mind, then maybe the aliens, I mean, maybe an alien can take over your watch or your piece of chalk. And, and th thanks to Wolfram, we, we know most objects are capable of universal computation, so in principle they could support them. Anyway, um, so that's, none of that is in the book. Let me tell you some things that are in the book. Um, so this is sort of all a spin-off on the thoughts about ontology. Now, the, the main, uh, the three, the middle of chapter six, there's three sections, and there's sort of uh, three principles that I'm describing in there. Uh, there's Wolfram's principle of computation, equivalence, and a weaker form of it, which I, I think is more plausible, the natural and solvability hypothesis. And this says that uh, most naturally occurring complex systems, uh, or let's say complex computations, uh, have an unsolvable halting problem. And uh, so that's a somewhat mathematical statement. Now, the principle of computational equivalence says uh, the same thing, most naturally occurring complex computations. So let's just put ditto here for that. Most naturally occurring compl complex computations are of equal complexity. So, now, how do you get from PCE to NUH? Um, maybe I'll outline that in a minute. Because at least when you superficially, they don't look like very similar statements. But still, at the high level, the second thing I want to talk about is the same most naturally occurring comp comp complex computations. So I'll just put another ditto here. Um, are unpredictable. And I call this principle the PCU for principle of computational unpredictability. Now there's a third, so these are sort of negative statements about computation. And the third one is, uh, let's see, the third one I call the uh, 
Let's see. I mentioned it first of all in the introduction to the chapter. Uh, let's see. Where did I mention it? principle of natural undecidability. Principle of natural undecidability. And this says a little more complicated. It's sort of a physical correlate of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. It says for most once again, it's for most naturally occurring processes. So here I'm going to go ahead and say processes. So for most naturally occurring complex processes uh, and for any correct formal system of science There will be, let's say the processes P, and for any formal system F of science, there will be sentences, statements about P that F can't prove or disprove. So these are three kind of strong limitative results. Sometimes, I think earlier in the semester, someone might have remarked, well, you know, what does it matter if you say everything's a computation? You know, it's just, again, it's just sort of this language game. But if you, if you take it to heart, then it tells you uh, three things about what you can actually do in the world. Uh, one, most naturally occurring computations well, Wolfram would just say they're of equal complexity. Now, a simpler or, or a, a kind of another variation of that is to say most of them have an unsolvable halting problem. Though since you're not logicians, probably that doesn't mean very much to you, unsolvable halting problem. So we have to explain what that means. Uh, second, most of them are unpredictable. Now, when I say things unpredictable, that means there's no exponential speed up. Okay. So uh, most naturally complex systems, it's no wonder that you can't predict them because it's even in principle impossible. And again, when I say there's no exponential speed up, if we assume that everything is a computation, then it's not like we have any other resources. If something is unsolvable, that means there's no computation that solves it. If there's no other thing to appeal to except computations, that means there isn't. It's absolutely unsolvable. And unpredictable, there's no exponentially faster computation. If we have only computations to, to fall back on, this means this is absolutely unpredictable. And the third thing is that, again, this is like a Gödel's theorem, it's, except it applies to the physical world. You take essentially any physical process, a fluttering leaf, uh, a pendulum, the climate, 
there's going to be, and you take your best system of science that you can come up with, there will be infinitely many sentences about that system that can't be decided by science, that can't be proved or disproved. So these are all uh, kind of interesting results. And basically what they're telling us, uh, well, they're telling us that logic is only going to take us so far. Um, and logic is all we've got if everything's a computation. So there's just going to be a lot of things that we're never going to find out the answer to. And uh, that's in some ways not that surprising. I mean, if you've been here on Earth for a few years, there's lots of things that you notice that you, know, you never really do figure out. And a lot of them never are going to be figured out. Um, and, but again, this doesn't have to be taken solely in a negative light. It can also be taken in a, uh, a sort of positive, liberating sense because to the extent that everything's figured out and nailed down, then things become less exciting. If, if you know everything that somebody's going to say, it's not very interesting to talk to them. If you go in a movie and you, after about five minutes, you can tell what's going to happen, then it's, it's not much fun to watch it. Okay. Well, now I want to fill in a little more information about each of these, these three things. Uh, how do we get from the PCE to the NUH? Uh, well, what does Ulfer mean by saying things are... He says most complex uh, processes or most complex computations are of equal complexity. What, what does he exactly mean by that? Well, first of all, what does complex mean in this context? Well, as I've mentioned earlier, uh, we think of the simple computations as being class 1 and class 2, <laughs> the complex ones as being class 3 and class 4. So the simple one is where something just comes to a point and stops. Uh, class 2 are the ones that oscillate. Class 3 are the ones that are you know, completely random looking. And 4 is where you have this sort of fractal-like behavior or Jabotinsky scroll or gliders. You have this semi-regular. Four, class 4 is, again, sort of between periodic class 2 and uh, pseudo-random class 3. And what Wolfram says, which is uh, kind of a bold thing to say, and uh, first thing I like that he said it, even though there's some problems with it, which I'll describe, but he said, uh, what if it was the case that there's not this whole different range of complexity in the world Basically, everything is equally complex. And that's, that's kind of a cool idea. Now, what are the problems with it? Well, first of all, I guess I better... What does he mean by equal complexity? Um, well, he's careful not to say that specifically what he means. That's If you leave a, a bold statement a little bit ambiguous, there's a better chance there will be some interpretation of it which is true. Okay, the, the more you nail down the details, the easier it is to shoot you down. But I think probably 
the, the, to a first approximation, equal complexity means able to emulate each other. Now, let's go back. This comes back to this guy, this thing I mentioned earlier in the semester, emulate. We say that Q, so computation Q emulates computation P. One way to look at it, uh, if we have a code, uh, one way to do it is we have a code, uh, maybe called the code MP, so that for any n, if I give Q the input of n, and I give it this code, uh, emulation code for P, then this will output, give me outputs that are very similar to the outputs of PN. Okay? So, um, and we might say specifically, if this gives me some output out, then this would give me the same output out. So the idea would be Q can emulate P, meaning there's something basically like a program or a model of P that you can put inside Q. You, if you give Q an input and this sort of emulation code, then Q will behave like P and it will produce the same output that P would have produced. Now, nailing this definition down in great detail is, uh, that's something I get into in the technical appendix. And uh, I don't want to wrestle with it too much in front of you. There's, there's some subtle points, but I don't want to worry about them too much. But just for the moment, um, we have a loose idea of this. We say, well, look, my personal computer, it can emulate a calculator. I, I, I select the calculator tool. I see a picture of a calculator on my de computer desktop, and I'm able to use it like a calculator. Or I can emulate a CD player. It can call up a set of controls. Basically, it's got this code to Im imitate a CD player, and then it behaves like a CD player. And uh, Generally speaking, uh, the notion isn't really that problematic. Now, what, when Wolfram wants to say most complex computations are equal complexity, we would say, suppose that Q emulates P and P emulates Q. Then we'd say, okay, the P and Q are, we could say, maybe we'd say they're, uh, Probably put it's it's not they're not exactly equal it's equal in some special weird math way maybe I'll put a one down there to mean that they're equal in there's this sort of one one equivalence that they can emulate each other so that's uh, that seems pretty reasonable now um, there are some problems there. and let's get to the problems now uh, one of the problems uh, if we say well, suppose that P, Q, suppose Q emulates P and uh, P doesn't emulate Q. So Q can emulate P, but P can't emulate Q. So maybe for some reason P is not capable of being as complex as P. So as there, there might be people like this. I mean, maybe... Maybe you can imagine what your four-year-old child is thinking. You can let them run through the process of what they're going to do. So you can emulate them, but they, 
you know, their, their brain has not grown to the point where they're able to really fathom what's going on in your head. Okay, so in this case, we would say that Q is sort of bigger than P. If we think of, we could just write bigger in the sense of being, let's just put a little E on it to mean emulation. Okay, so Q would be, have kind of bigger than P, more complicated than P. If they can emulate each other, we say we have sort of an equivalence relation. Now, another thing to remember is uh, a computation U is universal if it can emulate uh, any P. Now, uh, so the idea is we'd have the sort of highest level in the emulation hierarchy would be the universal ones. Then you'd have some P's down here. And then there's actually going to be some lowest level guy in this hierarchy. And this is what's sometimes called a recursive computation. If you take some really but simple computation, suppose whatever input you give it, it prints out a zero and stops, okay? Or somebody, whatever you say to them, they say, dude, <laughs> that's the entire computation, the dude computation. <laughs> you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Dude, you know, so this guy's not emulating you, okay? He's, he, can't, he can't produce the same outputs as you. So this would be the sort of lowest level computation, the highest level. And what Wolfram kind of wanted to say, he wanted to say, okay, the things that are equivalent, these are the simple things down here. And he wanted to say, all of these guys up here are all going to be equivalent, uh, the complex. Now, the problem is, it turns out, these guys, Friedberg and Muchnick, they're recursion theorists, and in, uh, I think it was the 60s, they proved that there actually will be some things that are strictly in between here. There will be some, there are, in fact, some computations which they're more complicated. In other words, the, the simple do-nothing computation can't emulate them, okay? On the other hand, they're not universal. Okay, so he, he was able to find there are computations that are not able to emulate everything. They're sort of midway in the hierarchy. And that, uh, that means that, at least the way Wolfram states the, the PCE, uh, that means it's not true. Okay? Now, um, <coughs> Wolfram's kind of aware of that. I mean, well, he is aware of it. And one way out, he suggests, is, well... Maybe these are very artificial mathematical constructs and something like a fluttering leaf or a stream, vortex, vortexes in a stream, wouldn't have this peculiar quality of being a, uh, a non-universal computation, but that, on the other hand, isn't as simple as these. Um, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, I think, actually... It at least would be an interesting possibility that Rule 30 might, in fact, it might turn out that Rule 30 is complex. Okay, there's no way it's unpredictable, but it might turn out that maybe, for whatever reason, it's not universal. 
It may be because there's just so much seething dog barf in there, you can't use Rule 30 to emulate any, you know, every possible computation. I mean, maybe, maybe not. It's, it's up in the air. It's an interesting open question. So um, what I think would be safer at this point in defending this, this sort of edifice would be to say, well, let's not hang on to this, this position that might not even be true. Let's take this weaker position, the natural unsolvability hypothesis. Now, the only downside with that is most people can't understand what the hell it means. It's, as I mentioned in the book, it's like the godfather makes you an offer you can't refuse. The mathematician godfather makes you an offer you can't understand. So that's the natural unsolvability hypothesis. So what is this thing about having an unsolvable halting problem? Um, you know, I almost don't want to tell you. We don't have that much time. I want to do the whole rest of the chapter. Uh, let's, uh, let me find a real easy way to put it. Um, suppose I have a computation P. I give it some input in, and then it starts off doing something. Now, sometimes it will reach some out and then just stop, okay? Other times, it will just give you a series of outs. And maybe it'll go on forever and never halt. Now, in some situations, we would very much like to know in other words, it would be nice to take this input and say, can we decide in advance uh, if it never halts or not? So is there some little test we can put on this thing? And I think I call it P uh, I believe I call it P fails to halt. Is there some sort of test I could run here? P fails to halt on in, and suppose this would always either give me a true or a false, and it would be nice if I had this little test so I could say, this fails to halt. Now, if I'm going to go off in this kind of branch, then this would return a true before I really get started. Otherwise, it would return a false. Now, why would we be interested in this? Well, think of a situation where you have, somebody's given you some new software, you've downloaded it unwisely, and you're about to run this executable on your computer, and you say, well, before I run it, I'd like to know, is it going to make my computer thrash, you know, and just never terminate again until I pull the plug out of the wall, or is it going to do something reasonable and then stop? So is there a thing I could, like, some sort of sniffer I could apply to an executable program so it could infallibly tell me, this program is going to run forever and it's never going to do anything, or it could tell you this program is going to achieve something and stop. Now, it turns out <laughs> Turing showed you can't have this, okay? So if P is universal, this was his big theorem, there is no P fills the halt function. So th that was Turing's theorem. <laughs> he proved, Turing wrote this epical paper, uh, and in it he First, he introduced the idea of a Turing machine to formulate, you know, what is a computation. 
Then he showed there is a universal Turing machine, so a Turing machine that can do uh, anything any, any personal computer can do. And then, even if he had just done those two things, that would be a lot. But then he, he proved that if we have a universal Turing machine or any universal computation, that thing will always have an unsolvable halting problem with it. Okay, so basically, Turing proved if P is universal. P has to have a finite number of, of steps, right? For, for, uh, yeah. what, do you, what do you mean by finite number of steps? Well, well okay. P is, a, P is a computation, right? It's a process. Right, P is a process, and, and we can vary the inputs that we give it. But they have to be finite. They have to be like a finite number of times. Everything's finite. Yes, well, okay, because see, I'm just thinking in terms of real computer programs. Yes. Now, um, you can look for a loop, right? Oh, okay, you can do some things in the way of testing. No, it's, you, I, I can look at some computer programs and I can say, all right, this program is, you know, I'm grading students' homework. This program is clearly going to run forever. You know, I mean, it can be done. But the point is, there's going to be some crafty, bizarre program that you can't tell if it's going to run forever. And typically, the, what, the, what the crafty, bizarre programs do they set out on an endless search for something that you don't know if it exists or not. Like suppose, the, the thing is, suppose this program says, <laughs> I'm going to start scanning through the integers and I'm going to look for the first, uh, I'm going to look for the first, oh, I don't know. I'm going to look for the first prime number that I, I can't write as the sum of two, two perfect squares. And isn't that Goldbach's conjecture? Something like that. There's some Goldbach's conjecture that says every prime number is the sum of two, two somethings. Suppose it was two perfect squares. So, so you can't say yeah. Right. So I could say, okay, I haven't found one yet, but give me more time. I'm going to finish it. I'm, I'm still searching. And so typically, that, that's, what, that's what screws you up on the failing to halt things. Because there's going to be some computations that get into this endless search. I'm going to look for the ideal script proposal to send Hollywood and they'll make my movie. And I try this one, that doesn't work. I'll try this one, it doesn't work. I'll try this one, it doesn't work. And somebody wants to go up and say, this guy, you're, you're a loser. It's never going to happen. You know, but so maybe not, maybe not. I need more time. So let me send another one. Let me send another one. So it's, it's whenever you have this situation where somebody's trying to do something or some computation is trying to do something and if it has success, then you know it's done, the computation is done. But the catch is, if it gets into these endless searches, there's sort of, there's no way to see out to infinity. And that's what, so in a way, it's not surprising that the halting problem is unsolvable. Because there was a way to say, I can see that you are never going to die of a heart attack. You know, somehow I can see out to infinity. Or I can see that Nobody will ever bounce a ball a thousand times, a golf ball a thousand times on a putter. You ever seen Tiger Woods in a commercial? He can do it like five or six times. 
So you say, well, will anybody ever do it a thousand times? And, you know, maybe, like, for the rest of history, you know, we'll be, like, living in the center of the galaxy. We'll still be trying to do that. And they're getting closer and closer. But you don't know if they'll ever reach it. And the thing is, the unsolvability of the halting problem says, quite reasonably, there's always going to be things that you can't predict the eventual outcome. So that's, that's what it's about. Now, this is actually the interesting part of Turing's theorem. Is if something's universal, there's an un- unsolvable halting problem. And so what I was suggesting along the lines of Wolfram's thing, rather than claiming that every computation is universal, because it's, you know, it's not true. We know it's not true. We know there are complex things that aren't universal. We've known that since the 60s. Wouldn't it be more reasonable to back off a little and say something, this is still a strong statement, but it's not, at least it has the virtue of not being obviously false. Okay? So uh, we say most naturally occurring complex computations will have an unsolvable holding problem. So does, so does Wolfram stick by PC? No. Uh, when I discussed this with him, he was surprisingly mild-mannered about it. I mean, I thought he would want to argue about it. But he was just glad that I was analyzing it this deeply. Because, I mean, I have a PhD in mathematical logic, and, and he does it. His PhD is in physics. So this is, this is the kind of thing that, you know, I, I like to, you know, I enjoy this kind of stuff more than he does. So he's like, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. That's probably okay. Yeah. But on the other hand, or maybe he just doesn't feel like getting into an argument with me. It's, you know, I'm not sure. You can, you can never really tell, but uh, he, he like chooses his battles. Okay, but uh, the one nice thing about this, the NUH, is then you can take this. And the thing is, this thing actually, this third thing I mentioned, actually falls out of this because it turns out <laughs> the reason why this third thing is true is a consequence of the NUH. It turns out most naturally occurring complex processes. If we assume the NUH, then they have an unsolvable halting problem. So there's going to be lots of things, about, statements about them having to do with whether or not some P of N runs forever. These are going to be lots of undecidable statements of this nature. And that's why, in fact, if you have a formal theory of physics, if it were able to decide everything about the system P, it would actually provide you a solution to the halting problem. But since we know that we can't solve the halting problem, therefore, for any formal theory of phys science, there's got to be lots of things about these natural systems that aren't decidable. Otherwise, they would have a solvable halting problem. Well, in a way, you're saying in a way the fact that we have complex systems has to do with the unsolvability of the halting problem. In a way, that's true. Uh, it's, I mean, you could almost say maybe that's actually what it means for a system to be complex. I mean, it, it might be, if you were to go through all this again, you might say, you know, being complex is sort of vague. Maybe I should just define 
for a system to be complex means that it has an unsolvable halting problem of some kind associated with it. And maybe the thing is we'd sort of rather not have to do that because it's nicer to say, just point at things and say, look at that. I can see that that's not simple. That's complex. And now I'm going to bring in this, this hypothesis. Therefore, it has an unsolvable halting problem. So then you sort of get something for nothing. That's, that's the virtue of a, having a hypothesis like that. But um, yeah, it, it, it might be that in some sense that is the origin of complexity, is that these things have the unsolvable halting problem. They get into these things where they're in some sense doing an endless search for something and you can't predict if the search will succeed or not. So that's, uh, that's, so that's the main stuff in the first section. And in some respects, a lot of that is in the third section as well. Now, finally, I want to say a little about the principle of unpredictability. This is another place where I deviated a little bit from Wolfram. Uh, this is, it's just a matter of terminology. Uh, where I use unpredictable, uh, he says irreducible. And uh, in either case, if I say P is either unpredictable or irreducible, that means that there is no uh, Q so that uh, whenever I have P with some input in producing some output, I can have Q doing the same input and giving me the same output uh, and the idea is that this would be some, num some number of time seconds t and this would be some much smaller amount of time maybe the log of t okay so this is this is a picture of q being exponentially faster now again I'm aware that most of you are not math majors, so just log, that's that's like something you learned in high school and forgot about it. <laughs> you thought, thought that had been laid to rest. I mean, here, why is it coming back? Uh, what's, what's the meaning of log in this context? Well, log is the opposite of, of exponent. Uh, let me put it another way. Instead of writing log t and t here, I could write... Uh, 10 to the s and s. Okay, so I could say, in other words, one, in other words, this is much shorter than this, means it's logarithmically shorter. Means that, like, if this has, if this is like a million, let me make a little table here to show you what I'm getting at. If I have like a hundred, or let's put some t's here. Let's put some log t's here. If t is 100, the log of t is 2. If t is 1,000, the log is 3. If it's a million, the log is 6. If it's a billion, the log is 9. 
if it's uh, you know like that. So the log of a number is basically one way to think of it. It's the number of digits it takes to write that number, loosely speaking. Like a hundred has two zeros, a thousand has three zeros, a million has six zeros, a billion has nine zeros. The log is simply the number of zeros that it has. So that's always the dream in, in theory, in analysis of algorithms. If I can find an algorithm that's logarithmically, that uses a logarithmic in less time than this, then I've really crushed it. Now, I, I did some examples of this earlier in the semester. I see, if we do, if I count on my fingers, that takes a certain length of time. If I use arithmetic, the time that it takes is logarithmically less. Okay? In other words, if I want to add a million to a billion on my fingers, then I have to count, I have to count a million in any case. But if I'm just going to use arithmetic, I just have to look at six digits and do it very, very fast. Another example is I talked about in, uh, in physics, when we have, if I have some formula, like um, parabola, say like y equals x squared, if I can just use that formula, I can crush the idea of, of a trajectory down to just pushing a few symbols around. And if I want to emulate a trajectory, I have to do like a thousand little thousandth of a second steps, tick, 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 all the way along the route, and uh, that takes much longer. So um, we say something, so Wolfram said irreducible, meaning you, I can't reduce it to a computation that's much faster. And that's one way to put it. And <coughs> I thought, uh, my feeling was it might, might be more colorful, more easier for people to grasp the idea if I say it's unpredictable, meaning that there's no shorter computation that do, predicts the output in this vastly shorter amount of time. Now, um, something that maybe the... I have a nice picture of all this stuff. So, most uh, one thing I, I argue in the book, I say that actually physical processes uh, they may not uh, they may not uh, allow any speed up at all in other words they may be even worse than unpredictable like you can't get logarithmically faster and this was something that came to mind I was just at the beach looking at like the surf you know, slam into a rock. And then when the spray shoots up, and it's just, to me, it seems almost inconceivable that there could be any kind of way. Like, suppose you say, okay, what's going to be the shape of this, this glob of water that winds up here? I'm standing here. This glob of water that lands on my nose. Okay, this wave slams into a rock. Okay, that's... A second later, this dot of foam lands on my nose. What's the shape of that thing going to be? And uh, I think there is not, I don't think we're going to find any way to speed up physics. Because. I don't think people plan to, do, to, to be able to do that. They, 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 no. They only, they only model things. Right. They make models. 
And so the models are reasonably accurate. That, that's kind of what they shoot for, I think. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's no, I'm not saying that physicists claim they can do it, okay? But I'm just wondering in a sort of science fictional sense, could I, you know, with enough crunch? And it's, it's what's going on is just so intricate. And again, it's so chaotic. It's so sensitive to initial conditions. It's not clear that we could ever really predict many things that happen in physics. Uh, in the sense, I mean, of a really precise prediction. Um, one, you could say, well, what if the world is actually down below is this digital thing? What if the world is this sort of monster cellular automaton? And then I could maybe get the precise initial condition in there and then maybe run it. Could I run it twice as fast? So maybe then I could, could speed it up. But then there's this thing, if I'm talking about the fundamental computation underlying reality, it's, you can't just go to Fry's and get a, a chip that's going to run reality twice as fast. So what's it running on? So there's, it's, there's just a lot of room for speculation there. Okay, you all look a little bit tired. I think I've just about finished Chapter 6. But... Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the last section. I talked about it a little bit earlier in the semester. I think Wing Wang said, uh, you know, what about how to be happy? <laughs> and I told her, and then she stopped coming to class. Uh, <laughs> she's happy now. But uh, there's, let's see, what did I say how to be happy? Uh, I forget this all the time, obviously, or I would be happy all the time, which is, you know, maybe I'm happier than I, I used to be, thanks to writing this book. Uh, so there's sort of something having to do with each chapter. They're offering you the job. <laughs> okay. 5.30. Uh, all right, five minutes. Give me five minutes, and then we can all get some caffeine. So the, I have six teachings here, and the book has six chapters, so I wanted to get a teaching from each chapter. And the first teaching is turn off the machine, because uh, relating to the idea of computation, the best thing you can do is turn off your computer and go outside. Your computer is ruining your life. It's giving you a backache. Giving you a headache from looking at it. It's making you do stupid work that you don't want to do, filtering spam. Uh, it's so invasive. So it's, again, maybe somebody, if they thought, if they didn't know me, they thought I'm writing a book about computation. Maybe I really love computers. That's not exactly the case. But I use my laptop. I'm addicted to it. I have a, the approach avoidance, you know. I, I like having them, but I also think that it's a mistake to think that compu computers are so as important as we sometimes think they are. Uh, one of the things we've been getting at here is even today there's all these, these intense limitations on what computations can do. So uh, we shouldn't set them too high. 
in our estimation. Okay, the second point comes out of chapter 2, which is about physics, and that is to see the gnarl. Not seek the gnarl, but to see it. Because uh, most of the places you go, there are gnarly things going on in nature. The clouds, uh, every day I'm grateful for the clouds, every day that we have clouds. Uh, I'm always, I really like looking at tree branches moving. Uh, fire, it's a wonderful, one of the great things about camping out or going to a winter lodge is just a chance to look at the fire. It's just amazing. Uh, one of the reasons, and whenever I see fire, it strikes me the air is actually full of these complicated motions all the time but we tend not to be able to see them. So being aware of how rich and complex the physical world is, is uh, again, that's something very good because the, the richer the world seems, generally speaking, the better off you're going to feel. Uh, the third comes out of chapter three, which is about biology, feel your body. Um, there's, it's just, it's nice that you have this I mean, that's the one gnarly thing you always have with you. You might say, like, I'm, maybe I'm in a room that's completely dull, like a mall. I've still got my body. And uh, noticing the physical sensations, like which muscles are sore, which ones aren't. Uh, it's not necessarily bad that they're sore. I mean, at least they're doing something. You can notice them. It's, uh, it's, it's good to be aware of your body. And also, um, the more that you teach, think of it as a complex, chaotic system, the sort of better you will, t will treat it. I mean, rather than just ignoring it, saying, well, it's just, you know, I, I don't need to, to get up and get a drink of water. I'm too busy deleting spam from my in inbox. You know, I can't, don't have time to take care of my body. Your body is, is rich and important. It's more important than your computer. Um, chapter four, the thoughts. Um, for me, the big thing is always to try to get away from the class two loops. I spend a lot of time obsessing about things that I'm worried about. Um, you know, things, my career, or things that I have to do, organizing things that I'm going to do with my family, or vacations or meals, worrying about stuff. I spend a lot of time in the past and the future, which is uh, not really the, you know, the, the happiest way to be. If I can be in the present, then the present is usually, I mean, unless I'm dying, the present is, is almost always good in one way or another. It's uh, things are never... Things that happen don't matter that much. Nobody remembers anything. Uh, things that are going to happen haven't happened yet. Uh, it's, uh, so if I can get away from the, the loops and get into more of the, uh, the class four things, the trains of thought, this is uh, one of the things I like about writing is that then I'm getting out of uh, my daily concerns and I'm able to just you know watch these, these things develop in a somewhat unexpected fashion. So that's uh, releasing your thoughts. Now, the fifth uh, 
it has to do with society. And there I would say the teaching that we can draw from these studies is to open your heart. Because the most interesting complex things that we deal with are other people. And it's always, if you pay attention and open yourself to a person, there's always a lot more going on than you'd expect. I mean, every time that, whenever you have an occasion to actually talk to somebody, they're, they're never as simple as you might imagine them to be. Like if you see somebody in traffic, you know, or somebody that you don't don't know very well, somebody that in some way threatens you or frightens you, you'll tend to reduce their humanity and think, you know, there's not much going on there. You know, this person, all they want to do is whatever. Uh, but that's never the case. You know, so to the extent that I get to know people and uh, interact with them as individuals, that's... Uh, that's, that's rewarding. Okay, and last of all, chapter 6, the lesson to draw from today is be amazed. Because none of our theories, our studies of computation, show us that none of our studies are going to get very far. There's all these, these things that we can't do. The universe is fundamentally incomprehensible and will remain so. So we might as well relax and enjoy it. So just be amazed about it. And every day is, every instant is a miracle. I mean, the fact that we exist, it's just so improbable. But here we are. So those are the teachings.